and welcome all. My name is Marissa, and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Thank you to all who have stuck around from the previous episodes, and welcome to any and all listeners who have discovered this show and have found it interesting. Knowing that someone out there is listening to and or, heaven forbid, actually enjoying my inane ramblings about a billionaire superhero in a flying tank makes me feel like I've done at least a decent enough job connecting with someone, even if it's only a small number of you. Welcome to episode 4, where, in contrast to the prior two episodes where we've covered groups of issues, Today, we are going to shift gears slightly and do a single-issue deep dive into the story that introduces the first of what will become one of Iron Man's most recognizable baddies, as well as introduce two of Tony Stark's more well-known supporting cast members. I'd be remiss if I kept y'all waiting any longer. So, let's get right into it. Part 1. Creating a Landmark Our focus story for this episode is titled Iron Man and the Icy Fingers of Jack Frost and was originally published in Tales of Suspense number 45, cover dated September 1963 and released on June 11, 1963. It's credited with story and plot by Stan Lee, script by R. Burns, art by Don Heck, and lettering by Sam Rosen. Unbeknownst to Stan and the team, and Regardless of Stan's usual hyperbole, this issue actually would end up being a landmark. The opening splash page foreshadows the coming clash between Iron Man and this new baddie, the eponymous Jack Frost, who has seemingly captured a snappy-suited gentleman. The page also hints at, read, spoils, the fact that Iron Man knows who the villain is as he recognizes his voice. How can this be? Well. Let's dive right on in and find out. Setting the scene! Our story begins proper as Iron Man zips past some motorcycle cops upon returning from assisting with an FBI crackdown of a weapon smuggling ring of some description. It serves a twofold purpose. The first purpose is to introduce a new upgrade to Iron Man's Model 2 armor. This is where he's finally added the jet skates that he showed off way back in DOS number 40. They are now an official part of Iron Man's arsenal, and here he is, putting them into action. Not gonna lie, I absolutely, unironically, love the ridiculous image of Iron Man in roller skates, and I smile like a giant fool every time they appear. His movements while flying or in motion at all are still pretty stiff at this point, unfortunately, so this isn't the most graceful roller skating you've seen. Yes, roller skating can be graceful and takes real skill. Have you never seen the movie Roll Bounce? But that will improve with time. The second purpose of this scene is to reintroduce Iron Man as a figure that represents the establishment. It's been a while since this was specified so overtly, but polarizing it as it may be, here is our reminder. This, I believe, is the first time we see him actively working alongside law enforcement. An image that maybe doesn't play so well to our modern sensibilities, with law enforcement entities maybe not having the best public image right now, 
for some highly understandable reason. But it was perfectly acceptable to the core audience at the time of mostly male white readers. Self-Destructive Thrill Seeker However, Iron Man's not about to stop to help these particular officers. He's done his due diligence to the man for today, and it's time for some me time. He's got a gig to get to as Tony Stark. Tony's scheduled to drive in a high-profile Formula One race referred to only as the 500-mile Speedway Classic. He transfers from his armor, changing into civilian threads while he's at it, to a fancy sports car which he had hidden in the trees, which he drives very clearly above the speed limit, to the track where his racing vehicle has already been prepped by his pit crew and is ready to rock and roll. So, if I've got this right, he gets out of one speedy death machine and gets into another speedy death machine merely to arrive at his destination and get into yet another speedy death machine. Alright then. Middle of page three and it's off to the races. Tony seems to be doing well and is apparently poised to set a new track record when he is suddenly stricken by the telltale pain in his chest along with a horrific realization. He's forgotten to charge his chest plate. Again. And this time it will nearly cost him everything. He loses control of the vehicle and wipes in a rather nasty crash, totaling the vehicle and trapping himself inside. He doesn't have the strength to pull himself out, and even remarks that he can't just turn into Iron Man and break himself out at the risk of blowing his cover, even if he was remotely in a position to do so. He most assuredly is not. It's at this point the reader ought to have noticed what I personally feel is the most damning trait this man possesses, and one that is often overlooked and severely downplayed, but is often part of his most damaging downfalls, and even plagues his MCU counterpart to a certain extent. And that is... Anthony Stark is a reckless thrill-seeker with a self-destructive personality. He has absolutely no qualms about repeatedly putting himself into potentially life-threatening situations without the slightest bit of hesitation. And his safety, health, and general well-being seem to be a consistent afterthought. And in this car wreck sequence, he seems almost eerily resigned to what could very well be his demise. It's almost as if the man has a death wish or something. We'll be digging in more into this as we go. As even though this first incident may seem mild by comparison, his self-destructive tendencies will only grow more and more pronounced as his story progresses. And, by the way, just so we're clear, I'm not just talking about his alcoholism, which has yet to come into play and won't for a good while, but which I'm sure most of you are undoubtedly familiar with regardless, as the infamy of that aspect of Comic Tony has certainly preceded him. Oh yes, we will get around to cracking that nut someday. Don't you worry. Aid from an unlikely source As Tony remains pinned under the car, all hope seems lost. A gentleman in a snappy plaid jacket abruptly jumps out of the crowd, runs onto the track, and pulls his sorry behind out of the proverbial and literal fire. Tony thanks the man and urgently instructs him to get him to his hotel room without asking questions, 
even though Mr. Snappy Jacket will feel better taking him to a hospital, as he can't help but notice that Tony appears in a bad way. However, Snappy Jacket does as he's told and takes Tony to his hotel room, where he is barely able to reach an outlet in the nick of time to charge up. Tony takes the time next morning to meet with his rescuer and thank him personally, expressing genuine gratitude. It is here that we learn that our Snappy Jacket Rescue Ranger is none other than Harold Happy Hogan. Fans of the MCU will almost certainly recognize the name of Tony's chauffeur and confidant. Here is where we meet Happy for the very first time. And now you start to see what I meant when I said we're going to see the pieces fall into place to shape Iron Man's world into something more familiar to our current audience. Tony wishes to thank Happy for saving his hide, writing the X-Pug, that's former boxer in ye old-time Americana speak, a check for a whopping $50,000. For reference in today's currency values and accounting for inflation, that is the approximate amount to well over 400 k Although Happy appreciates the gesture, he really isn't impressed, as signified by his exclamation in panel 4. Hey, a check for 50,000 clams? Is that all you figure your life is worth, Stark? Happy's incredulous accusation seems to confirm what the reader's already starting to figure out about Tony. That he doesn't really value his health and general well-being all that highly, especially if he thinks he can just write his life off with a check. Money doesn't solve everything, my dude. Happy even straight up says as much, telling Tony not to put a price on his life and that he doesn't require a fee for saving it with the implication that it would come across as disingenuous or some kind of charity or obligation. However, he does imply that he is currently between jobs and that having a solid gig lockdown would be more ideal to where he is currently. So, Tony offers him a job as his chauffeur instead. Happy accepts this time, grateful for the steady employment opportunity, but also makes a point that he's not driving no jalopies. Beggars can't be choosers, Mr. Hogan. Though, seeing as how this is Tony Stark we're talking about here, currently the single confirmed richest person in the Marvel Universe at this time, I don't think he has anything to be concerned about on that front. First day on the job at Stark Industries. The next day seems to be Happy's first official day on the job. He's shown driving Tony to the still-yet-to-be-named Stark Industries' main headquarters, now confirmed to be in Long Island, New York, near the World's Fair. Tony takes the time to show Happy around and make a few introductions. On page 8, Happy notices a large portrait of Iron Man outside of Tony's office, and after he questions it, Tony only responds that Iron Man is a good friend. This is only the second time on panel that he has leveraged a personal connection with Iron Man, just short of admitting out loud that they're the same person. Which at this point he would never do. For the record, the first time he directly mentions a personal connection is in TOS number 44. Upon approaching the office, we get the chance to meet Tony's personal secretary, or administrative assistant in today's vernacular, and she is repulsed by the Xboxer's apparently creepy mug. First thing she says to him isn't very nice and doesn't really endear us to her. And to top it all off, she states that she's only there because she has some lofty ambition of becoming 
Mrs. Anthony Stark. We'll just have to see if she gets her wish here. Though, if you learned anything from Episode 3, then you know the chances probably aren't very good. This spunky young lady, by the way, dear listeners, is none other than Miss Virginia Pepper Potts. Those familiar with the MCU will also recognize her as well as an important figure in Tony's inner circle. Unfortunately, her first showing isn't very flattering, mostly because Stan doesn't really know how to write women, let's be honest, as we'll see on many painful repeated displays. But luckily, she will develop into a more well-rounded character later on down the line. For now, though, unfortunately she's still going to be just a little bit shallow. Fleshing out our dear Miss Potts is a process that will take some time. She's also not quite a freckled redhead yet, but more of a freckled brunette. And she's also even mistakenly called Kitty at some point. In these early stories, Stan seems to notoriously have trouble keeping his name straight, with an infamous example being Bruce Banner mistakenly being referred to as Bob Banner at some point. So, unless Kitty was meant to be a special nickname, I'm more inclined to believe it was just another mix-up, because it's never seen again. With a new face on the board, Iron Man now officially has what this book has lacked so far. A regular supporting cast. And may I just say, it's about time. The Budding Psychosis of a Mad Scientist For now, we continue with the story and go forward to page 9, where Tony has slipped away into the most hidden and secluded recesses of his private office-slash-workshop and has changed into his armor, seemingly just to make sure it's functioning properly as he muses to himself. Just when the readers start to wonder, why exactly Tony's hanging around in his office armored up? An alarm goes off, signifying a real emergency and justifying his need to armor up. The emergency in this case is Professor Gregor Shapenka, who is apparently one of Stark's most trusted scientists and has seemingly gone and lost his damn mind. Iron Man busts him trying to rob a vault for some Stark tech that he can purloin for a quick buck and locks the good doctor into said vault for his troubles. As if this run-in wasn't bad enough, within short order, Shepenka has an equally humiliating face-to-face with Tony, as himself this time, who rubs salt on the wounds even further. Tony isn't going to prosecute Shepenka in exchange for all the good work he's done, but darn if he's going to let him continue to work for him after the stunt he just pulled. So of course, he has no choice but to fire the guy. Shepenka, being the disgruntled and quite frankly unhinged, now former employee that he is, can't simply go quietly. No, he has to make a scene of it, making a huge fuss on his way out, cursing Stark's name in a feverish rage as company security removes him from the premises, prompting Tony to reiterate that he's letting the guy off easy and he'd better leave peacefully before he gets cold feet about letting him walk. Twenty bucks Tony's going to regret using those exact words. Jack Frost wants revenge. Of course, our mad boy Dr. Shepenka just can't let well enough be. Instead, he dives headfirst into a mad obsession, spending weeks perfecting a freezing formula he had previously developed, 
which he combines with a special suit he's fashioned to channel said formula into concentrated freezing blasts, as well as using the formula as a protective coating around the suit, essentially turning himself into a literal walking snowman. And not the fun Christmassy kind of that. Regardless, he still audaciously dubs himself Jack Frost as he goes off on a rampage through the streets to exact his revenge on Tony Stark. He struts around, freezing everyone he comes across as he reaches the SI complex, including several security guards and multiple Stark employees, also including Happy and Pepper. He is especially nasty to poor Pepper, who, prior to freezing her on page 16, panel 3, he arrogantly spits at, I always hated you, Miss Potts. You always treated me so coldly. Now it's my turn to freeze you out. Yikes. By now, the reader should be giving serious pause with this guy. Not only is he absolutely Looney Tunes, he's also apparently an incel. At least by 21st century standards. He spits such venom and vitriol at a woman who he has probably barely even interacted with in the course of his daily functions, since they work in totally different departments, and yet he apparently feels she owed him some kind of positive attention simply for existing. Oof. Dang, Shepanka, you cray-cray. Seriously, this is some really effed up stuff that borders on just plain creepy, and I sincerely doubt anyone responsible for this book really thought this through. I mean, whew! If you can't take the heat... Upon dispatching the staff in his way, Jack Frost busts into Tony's office to finally exact his revenge on the main target of his ire, but finds Iron Man waiting for him instead. Iron Man exclaims that he recognizes Frost's voice and correctly pegs him as Dr. Shepanka as he wrestles the guy into an underground bunker, where they don't really have a fight so much as a brief face-off, before Iron Man adjusts his chest beam into a heat ray, a seldom-used ability that first appears here. Add one to the power, Stally. Disabling Frost's suit and freezing abilities before seeing to the safety and well-being of all of the frozen personnel, Happy and Pepper included. Shabanka is taken into custody upon capitulating to the overwhelming heat. Just as Iron Man takes his leave to go and find Stark, after handing Jack Frost over to the authorities, Happy, who is now safely thawed out, muses to himself that he was crazy for giving up his boxing career for this nonsense, but realizes that he can't quit now, as he is determined in the final quote of the issue on the last page and panel of the story, Looks like Stark needs a heap of protecting, and Iron Man may not always be here. It seems as though Happy doesn't exactly trust Iron Man all that much, though he remains blissfully unaware of Iron Man's dual identity as his new boss. Part 2. Retcons, References, and Reflection Well, quite a bit happens in this issue, as you have seen by now, that will continue to shape the book going forward. We meet Happy and Pepper for the first time, meaning that Iron Man now finally has a stable supporting cast for the foreseeable future, 
something this book had been sorely lacking until now. Iron Man in particular has a checkered history of a revolving supporting cast, as we will see going forward. For now, though, it's safe to get comfortable with the new status quo, because we will get to hang out with Happy and Pepper for quite some time. Happy and Pepper! But not like you know him. You might think you know Mr. Hogan and Miss Potts like the back of your hand from their roles in the MCU, played by Jon Favreau and Gwyneth Paltrow, respectively. However, I would advise you not bank on that familiarity too heavily, as while it may initially seem that they will play the same roles as their on-screen counterpart, with Happy being the chauffeur and moral center, and Pepper being the assistant-slash-confidant and source of romantic tension, the interpersonal relationships between Tony, Happy, and Pepper as a trio are actually quite different from what you have become accustomed to. I can also guarantee you that with absolute confidence, the ultimate trajectory of their dynamic will definitely surprise you. It did for me, I can tell you that much. No spoilers, of course. You'll just have to find out in future episodes of this series as things are revealed. Find out for yourself if you decide to read ahead. If you did, let me know what you thought. From Jack Frost to Blizzard You might also be forgiven for immediately taking Jack Frost as another throwaway villain as every other villain in this book so far has been. And for the first decade and a half of this book's history, you'd be correct. However, I have purposely put a strong emphasis on making sure you remember the character in this particular rundown. This encounter actually becomes very important in hindsight when writer Bill Mantlo brings Dr. Grego Shapenko back with a vengeance in his late 70s run on the book. If you're already familiar with Iron Man's history, then you'll realize that TOS number 45 has retroactively introduced the villain we know today as Blizzard, who will go on to be one of Iron Man's most notorious baddies. From the late 70s onward, Blizzard will make several appearances, sometimes even collaborating with other villains in order to try and take down our armored hero. All this to say, while we say goodbye to him for now, we'll certainly meet him again in the future. I can't wait till we get to late 70s Iron Man, y'all. You have no idea. Blizzard in Marvel Animation even though we've never seen Blizzard in the MCU, and certainly probably never will, he has made appearances in other Marvel media, specifically in the realm of animation. He appears in the animated series The Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes as Donald Gill, and first shows up early in Season 1 as an escapee from the supermax villain prison known as The Vault, after having been apprehended by Iron Man sometime prior to the start of the show. He appears again after being taken into custody by Thor, Ant-Man, and the Wasp. In this series, the original Ant-Man and Wasp, Hank Pym, and Janet Van Dyne, as opposed to Scott Lang and Hope, like most people know from the MCU. And he is placed into 42, the high-tech supermax prison Reed Richards is built in the negative zone. Mr. Gill, aka Blizzard, also features as a rightful member of Tony's rogues gallery in the animated series Iron Man Armored Adventures where he is a disgruntled former employee for Obadiah Stane, and looks to damage him as hard as he can in retribution, similar to the way he turns his frustrations on Tony in this origin story. While we're on the subject, since he's already been mentioned a few times in the past few episodes, 
I want to go ahead and get it out of the way for MCU peeps that we will not be meeting Mr. Stain for quite a long time. So if that's what you're waiting for, may as well get comfy with a warm beverage and just wait it out. Lamenting the luck of Iron Man's rogues in the MCU. It really is a shame that Iron Man's rogues gallery is so poorly represented in the MCU, so much so as to be darn near non-existent. Sure, he doesn't have the most recognizable baddies, like, for example, Spider-Man does, but was he really given the chance to begin with? Many of Iron Man's foes are actually quite formidable and memorable in their own right, and I can name several that we haven't met yet, and won't for a while, that more than deserve their fair chance to appear on screen to properly clash with our dear old Shellhead. Unfortunately, I guess we'll just have to wait until Marvel decides to blow up the current film canon and start over, whenever that may be. Probably after they've exhausted all they can with this one. For Iron Man's rogues to get their proper due. And subsequently, Iron Man himself as a result. Because, to be honest with y'all, the fact that Iron Man is the only well-known superhero whose film counterpart does not get to fight his greatest nemesis? Quite frankly, that's insulting. I will go into more detail on this point once we get a chance to properly meet the villain in question. An Iron Man video game. And, if it never happens in film, then, time of recording, an Iron Man video game is currently in pre-production and is being developed by Motive Studio and published by Electronic Arts. Or, you may know them as EA for short. If you've been listening since the beginning, you may have picked up on the fact that I like video games, and I obviously like Iron Man. So naturally, I am greatly interested in this project. Everything I've heard so far has me hopeful that the game developers are taking the property seriously. They've stated that they are looking at the character's history closely and are treating it as a passion project, so I can hope we'll get some good baddie fights in as well. We can't know if Blizzard specifically will show up in this game, but at the very least we can hope that the baddies that do show up are well represented. However, anything I can muse about the potential of this project is just that, potential. It's pure speculation, as at this point it's still very early on in the pre-development stage. And with EA attached, just going by their past reputation, well, for now I will say that I will remain in my default mode of cautiously optimistic. However things turn out, you can best believe I will be following the development of this game very, very closely. And I will be playing it when it comes out, come hell or high water. So you know, it better be good. And if that doesn't do it, if that doesn't scratch the itch, then I guess we will always have the aforementioned Iron Man Armored Adventures animated series to look back on. Which I will take the time to say right now, in all honesty, is far better than it ever deserved to be, and is actually a fantastic representation of Iron Man in his rogues gallery. It's a shame that it was cancelled so early, as there were so many more stories to be told. But I digress. As an aside, if y'all ever want me to make a point one episode, I mean, 
cheeky designation for bonus episodes, as you may recall, about this wonderful little cartoon series, I will gladly make one. I have at least 1.1 episode planned cuts coming up, but I do need ideas for more, so just let me know what y'all want to hear about. Thank you very much to all of you lovely folks out there for joining me for this breakdown of the introductory story for Jack Frost slash Blizzard, Empy Hogan, and Pepper Potts. Iron Man's world is looking a lot more fleshed out now, and we'll only see it expand going forward. We're finally getting there! It's exciting! I hope you really are enjoying this series. Please let me know if you are, and if not, how I can improve it. I understand that this is a large-scale project, and I've never attempted anything like this before, but I do intend to see it through. So any tips on how to improve going forward will be greatly appreciated. I look forward to seeing you all back with me in Episode 5, where we will be introduced to who is possibly Iron Man's most iconic foe to this point, as we take a look at the first appearance of the Crimson Dynamo. I guarantee you will not want to miss this one. In the meantime, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends, family, or whoever you think may be interested. Remember, sharing is caring. As always, the intro and outro theme is Breakdown by Kevin McLeod. Until then, this is Marissa, and you've been listening to the Shining Armor Podcast. The show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Stay safe and be good, y'all. <laughs>